How many hours and years of our lives do we spend on work? For nearly all of us, we spend 30 plus years and one third of our days in our vocation. More time, perhaps, than we spend at rest or at play. But this isn't a problem. Why? Because work is good. Work needs to be integrated deeply into our lives and must be in line with our most important goals and values. And if it is, we have a far more complete and fulfilling life experience. Welcome to the How People Work podcast, where we explore the intersection of how humans think and act and how they apply themselves to their work. When you understand both of these things, you'll be equipped to be insightful, compassionate, and compelling leaders. Welcome back to How People Work. This is Jordan Peace with my co-host, Jason Murray. Say hi, Jason. Hello. <laughs> nice deep hello. <laughs> Uh, welcome to episode 16. Uh, today we're going to be talking about feedback and something called the feedback fallacy as coined by Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall uh, in a recent Harvard Business Review article that they wrote. Jason has been, as we like to say, nerding out on this recently. A little bit. And a little bit. <laughs> and uh, as he's going to walk us through this article, the things that really jumped out to him, and, and we'll discuss kind of our thoughts and feedback on this idea of the feedback policy. Yeah, it's recent as of 2019. Okay. I think when it first uh, came out, but... Um, <laughs> so my word, I'm not sure my word recent was appropriate. Well, I, I mean, the funny thing is when I came across it for the first time, I was like, how have I never heard about this article before? Although it is one of Harvard Business Review's like top 100 articles of all time or something. So at least some number of people... I imagine that is a large That's number. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Sure. has has read this, but That's okay. Um, we don't have to justify the article you picked. Yeah. It's our podcast. Well, Let's it, just do it. It certainly doesn't feel that it's <laughs> become, you know, widespread or conventional wisdom, let's mm. say as it relates to business practice, no, but it takes I, decades for something to become conventional. Yeah, and it felt like it was perfect for how people work because some of the stuff they elucidated in the article really has to do with how we as human beings work some of the kind of brain science behind yeah love it. you know how feedback works um as well as you know how we go about our work because the applications of these things are very much in relation mm. to a workplace setting and right. how we operate as teams and whatnot um and in particular you know how managers or people responsible for giving feedback um, who tend to be managers and leaders uh, work with their teams and so hmm. i thought that was interesting because in some previous episodes we have discussed how managers can be essentially the limiters or the governors on the growth of an organization yeah absolutely then and, and they kind of determine the health of the culture of the organization is the number one reason for people leaving an organization is their manager right um harder to uh, survey but i would guess potentially the number one reason why people stay is also their manager right if they have a good one that's 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 my own guess on that i'm not sure the data around that um but that's interesting i mean the conventional wisdom uh obviously where we're headed here because the article is called the feedback fallacy mm-hmm you would think feedback's good. Feedback is you wholesale, would think so. a very good thing. Um, I've had many people ask me for feedback or tell me I'm not giving them enough feedback or that we should do 360 reviews or we should blah, 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 blah. There's always a an ask for like, how, I'm do, how am I doing? Give me feedback, whatever. Right. Um, to scratch some kind of itch of insecurity or whatever the case may be. So I'm interested to dig into this and find out why that is... Maybe not the right 
uh, approach. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. funny because I was listening to a podcast earlier this week and they were talking about the feedback came up. It wasn't the central theme, but yeah. feedback came up as kind of a topic they were discussing. And it was funny because they were saying, well, I always ask employees, like, how do they want to receive feedback? And everyone will tell you that they want direct feedback. Mm. And they were laughing about it because they're like, everyone they lies. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> actually wants direct feedback because when they get it, it's really hard mm -hmm. and it's emotional and you don't really take it well. And I thought, oh, that's so fascinating because hmm. it actually relates very directly to a lot of the science and the research in this particular article or yeah. paper, uh, if you will, around yeah. why that is, like why it's hard to receive feedback. So um, to set a little bit of context here, I mean, many people listening probably understand that feedback is something that has been encouraged and sort of, um, you know, praise and criticize yeah. uh, what workers do. So, yeah. you know, your job as a leader or manager is like, tell people when they're doing a good job, tell people when they're doing a bad job. Right. Um, but it turns out from this research that uh, Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall have done, that the feedback does not actually help employees thrive or it doesn't help in the way that we've often thought it does. And yeah. so there's a couple theories that they lay out here um, that we'll go through, but to kind of set the table for those, you know, the research kind of high level shows that people can't reliably rate the performance of others. Hmm. And so what they found is that more than 50% of your rating of somebody else really just is reflective of your own characteristics, not, not that particular individual, right? Mm. Um, secondly, that the neuroscience behind all this reveals that criticism provokes this flight or flight, fight or flight response mm. um, in human beings, mm. and, which is a very deeply wired kind of evolutionary uh, part of our kind of brain chemistry. Yeah. Um, and it actually inhibits our learning. And so mm. feedback is sort of designed or thought of to, you know, help promote learning and growth when in fact critical feedback in particular, you know, triggers this fight or flight response, which mm. actually means our brain shuts down. We, we're not able to learn mm. and kind of grow through that in the same way. Um, and then lastly, excellence looks different for each individual. And I think this one is really particularly interesting, but the excellence is uh, idiosyncratic. And so, mm. you know, it's not just sort of something objective that's transferred from like, you know, me, I know how to do things well, and I'm going to like share with you how to do those things well. Right. Um, that is much more uh, individualistic and context specific for each and every individual. So it's wow. fascinating. It makes perfect sense that that first bullet there around more than half of the rating you're giving someone else is kind of just just a reflection of how you see yourself and maybe how you see that other person distinctly different than yourself. And you're, you're kind of judging what's good, what's bad, what are good qualities, what are bad qualities or what's a good approach or good mm -hmm. language based on me right? Like right. as I am the kind of the centerpiece of the universe and the arbiter of what is and shouldn't be, right? Uh, so that, that kind of makes perfect sense. You know, we are very focused on ourselves and very much um, see the world through the lens of how similar or different is someone else than me, and that's kind of how we make a value judgment. Yeah. Um, so that's fascinating. Um, I'm interested in this, like, fight-or-flight response, like, I wonder what's meant by criticism. I wonder how much like the depth of relationship matters there. I wonder how much like mm. there, if there's intimacy and trust, then that criticism can come across as something really helpful, constructive, you know, 
Um, but yeah, that yeah, fight or flight. That's that's intense. You know, that's that's an intense reaction yeah. to like, hey, I I I didn't really love the way you led that training. You know, like I think yeah. you could have done better here, here, and there. Like that is like it's visceral. Just like, well, right. I'll just get out of here. <laughs> no, or I'm gonna argue with you about it. Yeah, I, I mean, know? I think it's interesting, and it sort of jumps ahead a little bit, but yeah. it's worth kind of jumping ahead to that point because I think it's a question that I had as well Yeah, when I came across this as right. well, you know, if it's somebody that I really trust yeah. and value their opinion and can maybe receive it, you know, with without such, um, you know, emotional angst, let's say hmm. that, you know, perhaps it's better. And what they would say here is that the kind of science around our, how our brains work is that there's sort of a learning set point. Hmm. And so really negative criticism doesn't promote growth. It can correct you back to a, a set point. Interesting. Okay. And so what happens then is, you know, maybe from a friend, I can receive that criticism yeah. more openly. Right. And so I'm able to accept it yeah. and internalize it. And when I do so, it doesn't actually promote growth beyond that set point. Huh. It just restores me to that set point. So it's like, if there is negative criticism that actually is true and merited, let's say, yeah. then it's not necessarily helping me grow beyond a certain point. It's just bringing me back up to that level set point. This is like a really basic example but what came to mind so my my son is in his what i guess third year playing baseball mm -hmm. jackson the seven-year-old and uh working with him on his swing mm -hmm. and which is a delicate thing to begin with with kids because uh -huh. you know my, my dad will tell you he over engineered my swing and actually my swing <laughs> kind of fell apart when uh -huh. i was a teenager um and he blames himself and i'm like i don't care i was never going to be a pro baseball player like it's not that serious but he still beats himself up but i think about like all the little corrections i give him like, uh -huh. keep that back elbow up, you know, like stop dropping your shoulder, right. you know, those sorts of things. It's like, I'm just getting him back to the set point mm -hmm. of like the swing that's as good as he can produce right now. Right. But I'm not, well, sometimes I do, but when I give him new ideas, right, of just like, hey, actually, you don't really hit with your arms, you hit with your hips. Yeah. You got to like pull your hips through and, and showing that there's there can be a marked improvement well beyond the difference between getting back to that set point, uh -huh. right? And I've seen, and I know this is like silly because it's, it's just what I've, what I've been focusing on the last couple of yeah. months with him. And he's so into baseball right now. So it's like really important to him to learn. And he has grown leaps and bounds, but not so much because of the little corrections and the criticisms, but because of the new ideas. Right. Because of the different aspects of like, right. You know, take a step towards the pitcher or to get, yeah. you know, get back in the box a little bit and let the ball travel a little for whatever, like those new little things. And he just lights up and, and grows significantly. I, it's, again, it's maybe not um, the best example for work. I but, think it's a great, I yeah. think it's a great example actually, because I think it does point to the fact that we learn in different ways and mm -hmm. the way in which we're going to, uh, promote growth is not going to be the same for every individual. And mm -hmm. so um, it pertains very directly to, you know, managers, because I think our tendency is to apply the way in which we learn to those that we lead. And so, right. like, we're going to approach it in a certain way without maybe even recognizing the fact that, well, we could be limiting somebody's growth in the way that we're going about trying to help them learn. Mm -hmm. So 
it actually ties in. Uh, so I'm gonna we're gonna go a little bit out of order because there's a couple theories that Fine. they Nobody lay out. Nobody listening has the article in front of them anyway. Yeah. Or so fallacies. You make up whatever order you so want. So this is number two in the article if you're reading <laughs> it, which we'll share in the show notes. But um, so fallacy number two they refer to as the theory of learning, and the fallacy is that the process of learning is like filling up an empty vessel. Hmm. And so what okay. they're saying is that the kind of right. incorrect thinking is right. that, you know, people are just empty vessels. There's and just we're nothing just like there at all. Pouring right. this new knowledge into them. Mm. And what they say is learning is actually less a function of adding something that isn't there than it is of recognizing, reinforcing, and refining what already is. So thinking mm. of it more as, you know, buds on a branch. The branch exists, there's buds forming. We want to stimulate growth along that branch uh-huh. in a bunch of different ways. And that's actually true when it comes to how our brains work. So in our brains, there's bundles of neurons in our brain with synapses that already exist. And what neuroscientists have found is that it's easier to develop new neural connections where the bundles of neurons are already most densely connected. Interesting. And so as a result, what it means is when you find those areas of strengths Mm. that people already have, your brain can literally form connections faster and more easily than in areas that it has fewer or weaker neural connections. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that makes perfect sense. It's I, the image that came to my mind was like certain types of exercise, mm-hmm. you know, like if you were like, you would exercise your, your legs really, really well. Right. And your core really, really well, but you never done a box jump in your life. Right. Mm-hmm. But you've done so many squats and so many, so many sit ups and so many things to like exercise the core and the legs. And I go, okay, we're going to put those two things together and we're going to jump on top of this 42 inch box or uh-huh. whatever. You, That'd you, be a tall box. Well, that's a, a 36. Let's go with 36. But you, you, also, you, it's pretty you're going to nail it. You're gonna, but we're talking about a person yeah. that's like really in shape with their yeah, legs yeah. in, but they've never seen this exercise before. They've never seen the combination of right. these two things together before, but because the individual parts are so strong, combining them together is so much easier. Yeah. As opposed to try to bring something completely new and weak and undeveloped in, that's tough. Right, yeah. And I think where that example is good is when I think about- My numbers of, are all wrong. 18 inch, I don't know. Yeah, I don't good, do box jumps. Uh, if you, anyone CrossFits out there, 24 inches would be prescription mm. for men. Got it. Um, doing box jumps. I try to jump as little as possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's better for the knees. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think what's what's useful about that analogy is sort of the, the opposite viewpoint, which I think is more conventional in mm-hmm. business settings, which is, you know, work on your weaknesses. Right. Right. It's like, oh, I have a weakness. So I need to like focus on that area really intensely and improve my weaknesses because that's what's going to make me better and make me more more well-rounded. And that's actually just false, right? Like one, it's harder. Like it's going to be hard, literally harder for your brain. Yeah to actually make those connections right. to improve in an area that you're weaker. Yeah. And it's far more efficient and far more effective to focus on the areas where you're strongest. And so yeah. what they talk about in the article is how getting that attention to our strengths from others in particular. Mm. So somebody recognizing areas that you are strong in yeah. and pointing that out to you actually catalyzes learning, whereas mm. attention to weaknesses tends to smother it. Dude, that 
fallacy, that very thing of like trying to improve weaknesses, focusing on our weaknesses, has probably been the biggest um, stumbling block in my entire life <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> or career. Like I think the majority of where my learned um, imposter syndrome has come from in this role as a CEO of a company is from this very thing mm-hmm. of I've spent so many years focusing on my weaknesses and determining what all those weaknesses are. And there are many, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So I have this laundry list in my mind of all these things that I'm bad at, right? And it held me back immensely. And I remember when, you know, because when we started Fringe, right? Like we didn't start Fringe with a CEO. Mm-hmm. It was just, hey, we, we got co-founders and we're just doing this thing together, right? right? And then a day came where we had that conversation, yeah. right? And one, I can't remember who, but somebody said, I think it should be Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I was like, <laughs> like me? <laughs> Can I give you my list of weaknesses, please? <laughs> you know? And then there was agreement around that in the room. And and I remember that being a, you know, really... Um, a really honoring moment from you know people wanting that, but also like a really terrifying moment of just like me, mm-hmm. you know. And it took and it's taken me years to realize that it's not the weaknesses that make that make me capable of doing the job that I'm doing. It's the strengths, right? Right? Because I, I can be disorganized. I can be like fuzzy on details. I can I can forget people's names right and left. I can have all these weaknesses, but because of a few things, right? The ability to cast vision, the ability to make decisions without having like an enormous amount of facts and analysis to go off of, the ability to like stand strong in the commitments that we've made and like rally the troops and recruit people and go like those few strengths, and there's not a whole lot of them, mm-hmm. and, and you always tell me I'm too hard on myself, but there's not a ton, you are. right? But there, there are the right strengths for the particular job, right? and that's enough. And man, I mean, that just like jumped off the page to me when yeah. I read it, that I'm like, oh my gosh, people are stifling their growth to a degree that it's hard to even explain by focusing on their weaknesses. Yeah, well, and I think this is why the the work of a great, manager or leader is crafting the role of people on your team to fit the strengths, right? It's looking at your team and saying, where is everybody strong? Right. And maximizing those strengths, right? Because like trying to mitigate the weaknesses is just going to be kind of a fool's errand. Yeah. And so like it'd be much more effective um, and positive, you know, experientially for the people on the team to have that focus on the strengths and so yeah well, and thus that that third point you read earlier excellence looks different for each individual yeah right like if we define excellence as one singular thing and everyone needs to go after that one singular definition of excellence mm-hmm. right then i mean that's a that's a disaster right <laughs> right because they're just things that like try as i might i'm never going to be able to excel at and there are things that i can excel at that others just you know, either wouldn't excel at or wouldn't even try. Right. You know, because it's just, it just seems so far outside of their skill set. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's worth, I mean, I, I don't think it could be overstated here, you know, what they're saying about this. So there's another uh, psychology and business professor uh, who summarizes some of this by saying that the strong negative emotion that's produced by criticism. So 
what we would construe as constructive feedback, mm. right? Which is going to be received as criticism. Because it, it, it is. It is, <laughs> right? It inhibits access to existing neural circuits mm. and invokes cognitive, emotional, and perceptual impairment. So it literally stifles that ability to grow. But what's funny is, um, I know you're a science fiction uh, lover. Yeah, this is, as, this is as where I nerd out. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And it reminded <laughs> me immediately when I saw that of a quote from the book or the movie now, Dune, um, mm. where they say, fear is the mind killer. So the full quote is, mm. I must not fear, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. And mm. so... You know, wow. I think that kind of negative criticism, what yeah. it does is, what does it do? It surfaces fears yes. inside of us. Yeah. And those fears are, you know, little deaths that we live through because mm. um, they're parts of our, you know, internal psyche that are just really difficult to uh, yeah. push through. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that fear is probably a really good word. Like fear is actually the thing that, paralyzes mm -hmm. you know the criticism is the criticism is like um what's the word i'm looking for it's like the precipitating event that leads to the thing that paralyzes people right. it's not the criticism itself it's the self-talk and the psychological stress caused right. after the criticism that leads to the fear of i'm not good enough or i'm not worthy or i'm not valuable or i can't whatever fill in the blank right. that's the thing that is uh so damaging and so um, so difficult to overcome. Yeah. You know, because we all have fears, you know, but I think one of the things that really helps us overcome those fears is if we're able to see where our strengths are, where our contribution is, where is the place. Like, it's okay that I'm bad at X, Y, Z because I'm great at ABC. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's your way out of that fear mm -hmm. in many cases. Mm -hmm. So I love that. So I think what's interesting, and this kind of goes back to fallacy number one in this report um, that they've put out, but it's, it ties into the sense that um, if we're thinking about criticism, if we're thinking about, you know, how we learn, you know, what the assumption often is, is, well, my criticism is in fact valid that if I'm going to offer you some kind of constructive criticism, yeah. that it's in fact rooted in some sort of, you know, factual basis that's objectively true. Right. Yeah. And what they are putting forth here is that, uh, that's sort of a theory of the source of truth that isn't actually accurate. And so, hmm. um, the sort of fallacy that they call out here is that other people are more aware than you are of your weaknesses. Hmm. And so therefore what needs to happen in order for criticism uh, or feedback to be you know, good feedback is yeah. that they're exposing to you things that you don't know about yourself, hmm. right? And what they call it is idiosyncratic raider effect. Um, but that kind of goes back to the first thing that we talked about is that more than half of our rating of someone else's, of someone else reflects our own character uh, our own characteristics and not theirs. Hmm. And so in other words, the research shows that our feedback, I mean, this, this is kind of sort of shocking to say it in this way, but feedback is more distortion than truth because hmm. if we accept well, you the, said it was more than 50%. So. If we accept the premise yeah. that, 
you know, the only objective reality that we can really ascertain is that of our own sense of strength and weaknesses and not necessarily somebody else's, then whenever we're giving somebody else some kind of feedback, um, we ought likely to be doing it with more humility, Mm. right? And probably less as a like entirely true proclamation. Yeah, I think that, I think the only part of this that I, I would push back on is not so much the not so much the idea that the feedback about who you are, what your weaknesses are, I, I think that's really I think it's a really great concept. It it tracks that people are aware of the weaknesses, right? I mean, unless you're you know, like I I don't know what the word is exactly, but there are certain people that are so neurotic right that they just they don't see any weaknesses of them <laughs> like there are some right. rare people or narcissistic you're yeah. narcissistic but that like but you're you're running the mill individual right is gonna see and be keenly aware of the things that they're bad at the things that they're bad at have held them back in life they've been right. embarrassed to them they've you know put struggle in their way and struggle in relationships etc 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 so you're probably not telling me anything new when you tell me about a trait that I'm like, Jordan, you're so disorganized. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah." like I've known that since I was like seven, right? Thanks for the feedback. But what when feedback I think is useful is the particular event of like, hey, the way you spoke to some, this person that day, you should probably go apologize. Like Mm -hmm. you were too hard on them. You what, like those individual mistakes, I think that is where the peer-to-peer feedback is useful Mm -hmm. because sometimes we are maybe intentionally blind to our own failure, you know, kind of relationally and so forth. Not so much, not so much blind to our traits. Yeah. Just to differentiate the two a bit. Because I think there is, there is a usefulness in going like, hey man, like, you were a jerk yesterday. Like, I don't know if you saw that. Right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's true. Um, so I, I think what's really, to me, fascinating about this is, again, some of the brain research, and there's some other stuff that I was aware of that I think was applicable here from a book that I read some time ago called The Happiness Hypothesis. And what happens is this, this very weird thing between our left brain and our right brain. And so, you know, neuroscientists that look at this stuff um, have actually figured out that our left brain and our right brain interpret the world differently. And that when there's gaps between the two, that one side of our brain will fill that narrative gap uh, in a way that might actually not be entirely accurate. And so I think that's part of the reason that this sort of idiosyncratic radar effect comes into play is like, you know, our brain isn't always telling us the truth in terms of our actual observation. So uh, there was a study that a psychologist did, and I'm going to read this because I just think it's so I wild. I was just reading it. I'm like, what it's, in the world is this? It's thing? so wild, but I think it, <laughs> it, it, it pertains, I promise. Yeah, um, no, I believe you. It's just what was going on with the chickens? So there's a psychologist, I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try to. But what they did was in this study, they flashed different pictures to two hemispheres of the brain. So the way that they did that is um, they would cover one eye okay. and flash an image to the other eye. Because your your right eye correlates with your left hemisphere you got and, it. and vice yep. versa. I, exactly. I heard this. Okay. You, you know that. So um, yeah, that's exactly right. And so what happened was uh, they would flash a picture of a chicken claw to the right eye, 
right? And then random. <laughs> totally random. And then they'd flash a picture of a house and a car covered in snow on the left. Okay. Right? Yep. Uh, and so this is how it kind of relates to how your brain's interpreting these two things. So the patient was shown an array of pictures, and then they were asked to point to the one that goes with, quote, goes with right. what they had like seen. A, like, a match, like a matching exercise, like a child's game of like, which of these things go together. Right. Yeah. And so the patient would point with their right hand to the picture of the chicken that went with which was the side that was shown to the right eye to the to the left or to the right eye which was which the left hemisphere. Less hemisphere process okay yes got it uh, so the right hand pointed to the picture of the chicken which went with the chicken claw that the left hemisphere had seen with the got right it. eye okay but the left hand pointed to a picture of a shovel what which went with the snow scene presented to the right hemisphere but when the okay. patient was asked to explain... Because you're thinking snow shovel, chicken, chicken claw. You would think which so. Which is like logical. But then they asked the, the subjects of these tests to explain the reason that they had picked, the reason for their two responses. Right. They didn't say, uh, I have no... He did not say, I have no idea why my left hand is pointing to a shovel. It must be something you showed my right brain. Instead, the left hemisphere made up a plausible story where the patient said without any hesitation, oh, that's easy. The chicken claw goes with the chicken and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. <laughs> what chicken shed? <laughs> exactly. So that hemisphere of the brain yeah. didn't even register like house, snow, shovel. Wow. It was connecting the dots to the chicken and yeah. assuming, oh, you need the shovel to scoop out all the chicken poop and it's the chicken It's related to the chicken. And right. The, right. And wow. so, and, and the way they did these studies, right, it was like very instantaneous flashes, right? So like, um, you know, the way that they mm. did it, I mean, it's really fascinating. There's a lot more information um, on that particular study that they did in the book. But what's really shocking about it is the fact that, your brain, like the one hemisphere of your brain, is literally going to make up a story for something that it sees that doesn't make sense to it. Wow. And so the ways in which we connect the dots huh. then, it, 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 I think that's where like humility comes yeah. into play, right? Right. Is acknowledging the fact that the way that I might be seeing the situation yeah. might not be accurate. Hmm. So to come into a situation where I'm going to give you feedback and I'm 100% confident that I'm right mm. in the feedback that I'm giving you is probably inaccurate, Yeah. right? And so like the, a better approach would be coming into it thinking, hey, I'm seeing something here. I don't know if it's right. Maybe I have a more humble attitude in right. my approach to it because it's less like I universally know something to be true about you that you don't see. Interesting. It's actually acknowledging like my brain, I see something. I don't know if I'm connecting the dots here the right way. Man, I feel like this, this, I have two examples that come to mind. One is I think about a child when they see, um, like every night my son asks me to close his closet door, mm -hmm. right? Because his closet door, the closet is darker than the room. Even though there's barely any light in the room, mm -hmm. right? He wants me to close the closet door. And it's, and, and I think, like, as an adult, I'm just like, well, the closet's dark because 
there's like less opportunity for light to seep into it because there's a small crack in the door. It's just, that's why it's dark. Mm -hmm. But to him, it's dark because it's an evil place Uh full of monsters, right? Like he creates a story for the thing that he doesn't understand or under the bed or whatever, right? That's that children's imaginations, adults' imaginations, right? We create stories for what we don't understand. The place where I create stories is I'll observe something about, just like you're saying, observe something about someone, see a pattern in someone's, behavior in someone's life and what they do, what they say, how they act, how they walk, how the face the face they make. Mm-hmm. And I'll make up a story in my head as to why that exists, right? And then I'll make the mistake occasionally of going to that person and saying, are you like this because of a, like ABC, the uh-huh. story that I made up, right? Uh, sometimes you get lucky and they're like, wow, how'd, how'd you know that? That's uh-huh. really, pretty good. But other times it's like, no. And like, and they're offended. Like, the like, why don't you just ask me <laughs> right. about it? You know, like I said, just making up this narrative out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's a fascinating idea that we just, we, if we don't understand something, we don't just chalk it up to like, well, I just need more information. I don't understand. Right. We will create some truth, some narrative. Yeah. You know, because we we need the closure of this is what it is. Yeah, and I, I mean, it, yeah. that's not like unknown or uncommon in yeah. kind of neuroscience either. It's just not something I think that's commonly known. I mean, I didn't know it until I read yeah. this book first, and then this article obviously yeah. you know brought some of this out. But you know, our brain uses heuristics all the time, mm-hmm. which are essentially shortcuts, right. and so we categorize things like our brain without us knowing categorizes things in ways that allows us to make shortcuts so that we can interpret the world, you know, more quickly. Right. Right. It's like, Oh, you're a person like, Oh, this, you know, that's a wall, you know, well, is is it a wall? I don't know. It's, you know, bricks and there's paint on it. And like, you know, you could deconstruct it to a level, but like my brain instantaneously just recognizes it as a wall. It's a heuristic. Yeah. And so instead of, taking in all the information that you could possibly take in. Which would be... Right, which insane. is infinite. It's that's, an infinite... That's like um, what a trip is. Yeah, exactly. right. And so because you can't take in this infinite infinite amount of information, yeah. your brain automatically categorizes things and makes shortcuts. Right. And so as a result, mm. your categories and shortcuts aren't always as accurate as they might need to be. Sure. And I think that's what right. pertains here is you know, when we're making judgments around feedback and what's true. Shortcuts. Right. Yeah. Inevitably, we're categorizing something, our brain's taking a shortcut, Mm. you know, not purposefully or maliciously, but we just have to understand that, you know, it may not be accurate in the way that Mm. we think it's accurate as like a, a complete and universal source of truth. Thus, the feedback we give is mostly unhelpful. Correct. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it's, it's not coming from a place of kind of, for lack of a better word, researching a person and asking them questions and really understanding the depths of what's going on. It's coming from a place of kind of pattern recognition of like, well, I yeah. knew a person that acted similarly years ago. Yeah, that's how we do They're it. probably exactly yeah. like them. So therefore, here's the value judgment yeah. that I'm going to make. Which, I mean, it's funny now that I'm thinking about it because what's what's most powerful, you know, self-discovery or somebody else telling you something oh, about yourself. You know, hands right. Down. And yeah. so, I mean, that's exactly, yeah. I think what we're talking about here right. is, you know, if you can help people self-discover yes. versus saying like, hey, I know something about you right. that you don't know about yourself, yeah. obviously. And so I'm going to bestow upon you this truth that I understand that you clearly don't understand right. versus, hey, I'm going to ask some questions 
you know, maybe I have an insight, maybe not, I don't know. But if I approach it in a way that helps you maybe draw out of yourself that self-discovery, you know, it's more valuable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think that's why stories are so powerful, right? Like when you want to get a, your point across to somebody, or you want to help them discover something about themselves instead of just directly saying, hey, I noticed this about you. What's up with that? Uh-huh. Going, you know... I was in a situation recently where I was faced with this challenge and here's how I responded and here's what I learned from it. And you just sort of walk away, you know, and, and let that story linger. I think people can connect to the, oh, right. okay, yeah. What they yeah. learned is maybe similar to what I need to learn. And, you know, I think it's more useful. Like there's no, there's nothing that's going to be elicit that fight or flight you know, situation about just telling your own story, you know, to giving your own um, experiences to somebody that really, I think, helps them learn. Yeah. You know, which again, it goes back to the concept we talk about all the time of intimacy, right? Yes. You gotta, you gotta get intimate with people. You gotta share a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your life or you're, you really can't help them. But I think that's the only kind of quote unquote feedback yeah. that is really a safe space, yeah. you know, to help people actually grow. It's just to kind of, hear what you've been through yeah, and learn from kind of your mistakes. Right. You know, but that takes some vulnerability to do that. Well, this is good. Um, I like this topic. I think it's a fantastic paper. Um, it's so many, it's interesting. There's so many things that we just blindly accept, you know, it's just like, yep, feedback, hundred percent, a good thing. Yeah. You know, no questions asked. We should do that. We should do it more. We should do it as often as we can. Yep. Um, and then, you know, to your point that you brought up earlier, when you ask on that other podcast, when you ask people what kind of feedback they want, they oh, I want it direct. I want it straight up, straight up, no chaser, you know, no ice, nothing. <laughs> Just give it to me. You know what I mean? Because we want to sound tough. We yeah. want to sound like we could take it. I could take that feedback. Yeah, I could take yeah. that feedback. What do you got? Lay it on me, right? Um, and I'll just force myself to get better, whatever it is that you say, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's unrealistic, mm-hmm. um, and the wrong way to approach it, but yeah, great topic. I think maybe we'll return to this. Um, yeah, we will. There's still some more to unpack at some point. You know, it's funny because, um, I'm just going to have to like take an L here because I, I'm in this article here and I totally forgot what the word of the day was. <laughs> <laughs> As a result, looking through I got you article. off the show notes. Yeah, so I'm just so. like, I'm not on the show notes. I don't know what the, what the word gotcha. is. Gotcha. Oh, man. <laughs> That's right. What, what was it? Do you remember? What was uh, the word? Rarified. Oh, that would have been easy, man. That would have been bust an out one. We're in rarefied air. I mean, yes. there's so many easy ways to like incorporate that. Oh, shoot. Oh, well, I'll take an L. That's a, that's a, that's a win for you, yeah. Jason. All right. Um, well, Jason, t- tell us about the word of the day next week. Hopefully I won't disappoint our listeners again. All right. Um, I feel like this one ought to be like a layup. All right. Cordial. Oh, okay. All right. If I miss that, <laughs> I'm, I'm firing myself. You're fired. <laughs> Just well, on the podcast, do this not, not my job. Okay. <laughs> The podcast is over. Then, <laughs> the so podcast is over everybody. if I miss Cordial next <laughs> week. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening um, and kind of tuning in around this idea of feedback and the feedback fallacy. Thanks for listening to episode 16 of How People Work. 